Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends at 13 Star Designs. 13 Star Designs is a unique vinyl and embroidery shop where you can purchase holiday favorites such as customizable wreaths, spooky Halloween prints, a budding wizard's first talisman, or the world-famous dick mark, the first ever penis-shaped bookmark. Shop today at facebook.com slash 13 Star Designs. Yay. Ah. Woo! Hey everybody. Welcome to the very first episode of The Podcast Was on Fire. And it wasn't my fault. I'm Josh. And I'm Alyssa. And we're here to break down and dig into the Dresden Files series of books by Jim Butcher. First episode is focusing on the first chunk of Stormfront, the first novel in the series, the world's introduction to the Dresden Files, and uh, the world's introduction to Jim Butcher, novelist, as well as James Marsters, audiobook reader, narrator, I guess you call him. Um, so yeah, this is, uh, ordinarily we're going to break down the previous podcast and kind of catch everybody up, but since you're caught up, this is the first one. <laughs> Kind of introduce ourselves. I'm Josh, and uh, I've been reading, you know, I've been reading for decades, I guess. Uh, but I was, uh, I got in hooked up on uh, Dresden Files after I finished another book series and was looking for a new series. And not going to lie, James Marsters, uh, I was a big Buffy fan. James Marsters being the narrator uh, for the audiobooks kind of got me into it. And uh, I've gone through those series, I don't know, four or five times probably on audiobooks. And, um, yeah. And uh, he's been trying to get me to read these books for about two years. Uh, I finally have been able to kind of get a bit of time to be able to. I've gone through this one about three times once I read it and twice listened to it. So I'm, uh, while I'm the newbie, I have only read this one. So I don't have any frame of reference for the future books. And that's kind of what we're going with here. So I, uh, I'm a big reader. I generally just read anything that's out there. Um, I do love a good mystery, and uh, this is an interesting kind of take on the mystery novel. And well, I appreciate I've read, that. I've read some high fantasy. This is my first ever urban fantasy that I can think of. I mean, besides, I guess, like I said, Buffy, but certainly from a reading perspective. You ever you ever read anything like this? Um trying to think i'm writing a book right now a series by tracy wolf where it's it's set in like a real world alaska and it's got all the supernatural stuff so it's not necessarily urban because it doesn't take place in a city but it's not as high fantasy as like uh a court of thorn and roses which that whole series i devoured several times so it's i'm not generally a fantasy novel reader or so i'm not i oh you know what actually true blood series that definitely could be considered urban fantasy because it is. Is the show based on that, or is that based? Yes, on it show? is, and the books are way better than the show. Because okay. about three seasons in, they take a left turn, so, and yeah, okay. Yeah. I saw the first like four episodes. That's all. Yeah, I yeah. The, no, the books are quite good though. So, so I guess you know, I have, I do Put have experience. That on the list. There's a couple, couple of uh, uh, those books. That, that series that hurt that author's book series books series of books are great. Awesome. So like I mentioned, this is uh, Butcher's first published novel. 
Um, I think a lot of it was written actually for a writing class. Um, it was also James Marster's first foray into audiobooking. Um, and this is our first foray into podcasting. So it's a, a, a good start. Hopefully, uh, we improve as we get through this as much as uh, <laughs> Butcher and Marsters do. And maybe we're naturals at it too. We're probably going to be famous. So um, yeah, lucky you guys for getting on board on the ground floor here. Um, and uh, yeah, anything else you want to add before we get into it? No, let's rock and roll. All right. So here's our, uh, we're going to go chapter by chapter here and then we'll uh, go from there. So our, our book starts with our down on his luck noir, um, detective um sitting in his office kind of passing the time as um down on their luck noir detectives tend to be at the beginning of every good noir detective story um he's a wizard we're introduced to harry uh blackstone copperfield dresden um who's a wizard who's actually in the in the phone book uh he has an office in downtown chicago with harry dresden wizard on the you know painted on the glass on the outside and um He's an openly practicing wizard, which is you know, obviously our first left turn from our normal reality. Um, book was released in 2000, whatever that's worth. And I looked this yeah, up, wow. actually. Harry's 25 at the start of the novel. We had kind of discussed this hmm. as a sidebar that it was, it, it doesn't feel, he feels immature, but, you know, just kind of sometimes it feels like he's a little bit older, but apparently he's supposed to be 25 in this novel. And I think uh, Karen is a couple years older, or whatever that 25 was. is just so young. Yeah, it really is. And it's incong- incongruous kind of with his like hard boiled kind of jaded demeanor. But I guess a lot of that is because when he was an adolescent, you know, mm. all the things that happened to him. Um, but, um, you know, We'll get into this. Um, yeah, as we go, like I said, it's it's already a change from a lot of supernatural stories where he's out there in the open, which I kind of like, um, just because it, it kind of gets you on your toes right away. This is going to be a little bit different than anything else you've read in the genre. Uh, he's not a wizard that's hiding or keeping a secret identity. Um, he's he's out there. He's in he's in the book. Uh, you can look him up. Um, and it kind of makes sense. If I was a wizard, I would try to monetize it myself. Um, like you said, it doesn't sound like he's had a lot of success. He's behind on rent. He gets a lot of prank calls. People change his sign and make fun of him. Um, let's see the yellow page his ad in the yellow pages says Harry Dresden, lost items found paranormal investigations, consulting advice, reasonable rates, no love potions, endless purses or other entertainment. Um, so yeah, uh, he's pretty straightforward. Um, I wonder if we'll, uh, he'll be tested to change any of those uh, phrases in there as we go through this novel. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> we, we, our story starts with a um, the mailman. It's a new mailman comes and knocks on his door. He already knows something's up because the mailman usually slides his mail in the slot. Um, and he's just, you know, standard what you would do if you walked up to a place and somebody said they were a wizard, you'd say, uh, really? All about. Um, and he just kind of interrogates him and, you know, calls him a nut, gives him his, Gives him his uh, mail. Reluctantly. Then, reluctantly. Um, Harry's just trying to get through the day. Um, and, and the phone rings. And we get a call um, from a woman who doesn't want to tell him much. She's Her, her husband is missing. Um, she doesn't want to call the cops. She, she, there's definitely something spooky around it. She feels he's not so sure. But um, he tells her to come on. She, she's nervous talking to a wizard, it sounds like which means she has some 
understanding of the craft um or has at least heard about them and believes some in frame of reference yeah she she at least is a believer um and uh he tells her to come on down they'll they'll talk it out uh no charge um, which he has to squeeze out um just to get her to come out and then they set up an appointment for about 45 minutes later and then as soon as he hangs up the phone it rings again and it's a uh, Karen Murphy, who we'll hear a lot of in this novel and moving forward. She's a, a big part of the Dresden Files, Karen Murphy is. Um, and she's a detective. Um, she's a, was she a lieutenant? Yes. A lieutenant with the Chicago PD, working what they call special investigations, which is kind of the spooky uh, side of things. They get thrown all the questionable cases that nobody else can put into a nice, neat box. Um and that you can tell they have some background. He kind of jokes around with her. She doesn't really joke back, um, but you can tell that they've, you know, they've known each other a little bit. And she tells him, uh, get down here to the hotel down the road. And um, there's a murder. She's got two dead bodies and clearly something spooky and she wants his insight. So he hangs up the phone and heads on over. All right. A little bit of frame of reference here for me. I'm a coroner investigator, so I've actually been to homicide scenes, deal with homicide detectives and all that fun stuff. So this is kind of entertaining to me. There were a lot of elements that gave me a giggle. Um, but first off, he uh, he arrives and uh, he heads over to the hotel where this incident occurred. Uh, he shows up outside the hotel where Lieutenant Karen Murphy, director of special investigations, you know, the Chicago PD is there. Um, and we get a hardcore de description of Murphy. The way that women are described in the, this book are, is interesting. They're very, very specific. I mean, it goes along with the noir, moderately borderline misogynistic, uh, but it's interesting that it's a modern noir, I guess you could see. Um, so, one of the, the initial description we have of Murphy is an odd kind of, he's kind of assuming things. Murphy never wore dresses, which as a homicide detective, she shouldn't wear dresses. Uh, though I suspected she'd have muscular, well-shaped legs like a gymnast. She, also, she was built for function and had a pair of trophies in her office from Aikido tournaments to prove it. Which is just a weird description where he's assuming that she's got good legs. Just weird. Uh, and then he talks about her very physical, very descriptive of her physical attributes um, and that she doesn't really look like a hard-bitten homicide detective. And I can tell you from personal experience, homicide detectives rarely look like homicide detectives. Um, she kind of mentions his jacket because he wears a black duster, which is very Spike, actually. Um, and th then we move, go into the hotel. Um, he does make a comment about women. They race each other to the front door because he thinks that it's appropriate that men open doors for women. And he says, I think that men ought to treat women like something other than just shorter, weaker men with breasts. Little cringy. Little cringy. Uh... Okay, then we um, go. We, that sounds like a, a lame 25 year old. <laughs> no, it totally does sound like a lame 25 year old, maybe a little incel uh, energy there. Um, and it's, you know, I enjoy treating a woman like a lady, opening doors for her, paying for shared meals, giving flowers, all that sort of thing. There's a running joke between Butcher and the uh, cover art where Harry is never once depicted as wearing a hat in the, sh in the books. 
Um, but on the cover of every novel, he's wearing a hat. Oh goodness! But that just just he he definitely should be wearing a fedora at this point. It's just kind of what you made me think about. Sorry, carry on. Um, yeah. Oh, totally. <laughs> kind of a some milady vibes here. Oh uh, yeah, way very very carry much on. so. Uh, okay. Um, it's another thing that really kind of bothered me a little bit. He's it irritates the hell out of Murphy. Um, that when he does that, so he does it to irritate her almost, which it kind of gives a little bit of a, of a background about their relationship and what we see as, as the story goes on, um, where it's a little bit confrontational. So we get up to the hotel room, uh, which is, I believe on the seventh floor. It is a suite. Uh, this description of the suite makes it sound like it's a very dark room, dark red carpet, red furniture, red, uh, drapery. And this is where we meet Murphy's partner, Ron Carmichael. This is also where we see the differentiation between how women and men are described. Uh, Ron Carmichael is described as a short, stocky man who's rumpled. He's sloppy with a stain on his tie. He said the, the actual quote is, his jacket was rumpled and there were food stains on his tie, all of which served to conceal a razor intellect. He was sharp cop and absolutely ruthless at tracking down killers. She was described as having suspected muscular, well-shaped legs and looking like an ant. Which is just, again, there's your dichotomy there with the description. Uh, and one of the, he, as we get into the hotel room, he makes another weird comment about, um, he finds a pair of underwear and, and asks Murph, uh, asks Carmichael, were you saving the panties to take home for yourself or you just overlook them? It was weird. It's a weird kind of misogynistic thing where I'm not, I wasn't a fan of that. Okay. So we've got that, our razor intellect with our beady bloodshot eyes. Um, Cause of course it's Nora. He had to be. Uh, and then we, Carmichael shows him the bodies, these two people in a hotel room. Their hearts have been ripped out of their chests by unknown forces mid-coitus. The, from a coroner investigator perspective, I'm trying to picture this in my head and how I would write this in a report. It's spectacular. An amazing description. Uh, had it been a neurotic photograph, it would have made a striking tableau. Except that the lever's rib cages on the upper left side of their torsos had expanded outward through their skin, the ribs jabbing out like ragged, snapped knives. Arterial blood had sprayed out of their body, bodies all the way to the mirror on the ceiling, along with pulped, gelatinous masses of flesh that had to be what remained of their hearts. Standing over them, I could see into the upper cavity of the bodies. I noted that the now grayish lining around the motionless left lungs and the edges of the ribs, which apparently were forced outward and snapped by some force within. First off, um, the heart is actually a muscle. It's not gelatinous. But anyway, all those other descriptions are awesome. Broken ribs are sharp and can cut you, even through gloves. I was an autopsy assistant, and that's something that is very dangerous. So this is a great description. It's just this, this dichotomy between the you know, erotic photograph of a striking tableau, and then literally their heart got torn out of their chest. It's amazing. Good introdu and introduction to the novel series, <laughs> Oh my God, it's fantastic. And from like, from my perspective, from what I do for a living, it's so great. I absolutely love it. Um, so this is, uh, we get a description of Jennifer Santon and 
he's focusing on her because he says he's going to, otherwise he's going to start crying like a little girl, which again, a little bit sexist, but just 2000. So, uh, okay. And he, you know, she's a woman in her twenties in fabulous condition. Again, we get an excessive description of her. Of course, you know, her- with her, her chest torn open and we're still yes. sexualizing her. Yep. And, uh, you know, and then her, your eyes were only partly open. I couldn't quite guess at the color beyond not dark, not dark. Vaguely green, question mark. Uh, the man was probably in his 40s. Then the man, she, he's describing the color of her hair, the cut of her hair. And the dude is like, he probably in his 40s, some kind of fitness from lifetime conditioning and a couple of tattoos. He had some scars, probably from a knife wound. It's just a little bit. Yeah, again, the dichotomy of the description. Um, and that's Tommy Tom. We learn Jennifer is an, an escort from the Velvet Room, and he's an, an, an enforcer with a local crime lord, Johnny Marconi, or Marcone, whatever we're calling him. Um, so at this point, they want, to help, they want him to help find the killer. Um, and this is also where we learn about a couple types, types of magic, evocation and uh, thaumaturgy. Uh, there's only, he says there's only two ways this could have happened. Evocation is the most direct, spectacular, and noisy form of expressed magic or sorcery. Explosions, fire, that sort of thing. Um, but he said he doubted what is an evocator who did this because that has to be um, something to connect them with it. Uh, like a voodoo doll sort of stuff. No, evocation you know. is line of sight. Sorry, evocation is line of sight. The other is thaumaturgy. Uh, as above, so below, make it happen on a small scale and give it the energy to happen on a large scale. And this one is the more, that is more like the voodoo doll t- kind of concept that you can do from a, a large, a long distance. You don't have to actually have eyes on. So these are our two types of magic that we're introduced to right now. And he also says that it looks like it was a woman because women are better at hating than men. Murphy didn't like this. And she says, why the hell do you think that? You can't do something that bad without a whole lot of hate. And he also thinks that he says that women can focus their hatred better and that witches are just meaner than wizards and that this feels like feminine vengeance. Again, such a weird paragraph, you know, especially mm-hmm. you, you've finished the book by now, which yeah. ideally moving forward, we'll do this when we read a chunk and you haven't gone ahead. Yeah. But like, Spoiler for those that, you know, I don't want to ruin it. Or we do want people to read along as we're going through this. Yeah. But that, that line doesn't, they never come back to that. They never circle back. They never reference it. Mm-hmm. It's just such a weird throwaway. And I'm with Carmichael on this one. Like, what the fuck are you talking about, bro? Like, it's yeah. just so weird. Sorry, carry on. Yeah. Um, and then uh, he, at this point, he leaves because he says he has a meeting and he heads back to the office to meet Monica and en route gets scooped up by Johnny Marconi. And that's the end of the chapter. So chapter three, he hops into the, he's rushing back to get to his, his meeting. Mar- Marcone's bruisers have, have shuffled him into the car. Um, and we meet another recurring character, Johnny Marcone, or as uh, he's called for the first couple novels, Johnny Marconi. Uh, by Mr. Marsters. And actually, that's probably better Italian pronunciation. But mm-hmm. uh, for the most most of the uh, story, he's he's going to be John Marcone, um, who's the resident crime lord of Chicago. Um, and he's a ruthless man, but he's not evil. He was one of like the uh, neutral neutral evil or whatever i guess 
Um, but he, he's not, he's definitely not a good guy, but he doesn't try, he, you know, he's not going out of his way. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't twirl his mustache or anything like that, which, yeah. which makes him a really interesting character. Um, he's the Lord of the un- underground. Um, and, um, he runs all the drug trades, the gang violence, the prostitution and gambling and, you know, the seedy underbelly of Chicago, everything goes through him. Um, And um, they he tries to make a deal with Harry. He asks him to do nothing for a couple weeks, and he wants to pay him his hourly rate to not do the investigation for the police, which um, obviously certainly raises um, alarm bells because why would someone do that? Um, and we know that Tommy Tom, you know, the male victim, is connected to Marcone. Um, but for a wizard in some financial trouble, he hasn't, he's late on rent. He's actually behind a month and a half on rent. I think it sounded like, mm-hmm. and, um, he clearly needs some money. Uh, it's quite the deal, you know, five figures worth of money to, um, do nothing, you know, take a vacation, put his feet up. Um, and Harry pretty immediately turns it down. Um, I think, you know, clearly he doesn't want to get involved with, someone like this i mean he's clearly a gangster um you know it's it's gonna be blood money at some point um you know you you don't want to be mixed up with people like this plus he has the obligation to his friend karen and and to the police department um to do the investigation but um as he turns it down they they lock eyes and it's something that they kind of like hinted at over the last couple chapters um you know people looking at harry's nose and you know looking him in the face but not in the eyes um, but we learn about the soul gaze, which is a piece of lore that's pretty interesting. Every wizard, you know, everyone with some magical power um, are capable of what they call a soul gaze. So if anyone stares them in the eyes for just a few seconds, you're locked into this kind of cosmic embrace where you both see each other's souls and you learn a little bit about each other. Um, and it's part of the wizard's sight, which means it's indelible and you, you see it forever. So you, you try not to do it all the time, even wizard to wizard, because it's stuck with you. Whatever you see, you can't unsee, you can't lessen the impact it has on you. Um, and we learn a little bit about Marcone here. He's a very ordered person. You know, his his soul is very clean and orderly um, and everything is straightforward. And he he has a, a drive to be successful and, and continue to grow in power and strength um, and do it in a way that causes the least amount of unnecessary harm um and there's a little pocket of his soul that we don't learn about that that is the driving force um and and we don't know what that's about but it's clearly a source of his source of who he is and it powers him and empowers him and drives him to be the type of man that he is which is evil but not necessarily unreasonably so i guess um and, um, yeah, so, I mean, Harry was clearly trying to intimidate Marcone by looking him in the eye and he wanted, you know, basically a game of chicken. When you're a wizard, you look somebody in the eye, they're gonna look away if they know what's good for him. Um, but instead Marcone was counting on it. And so they got their soul gaze and he learned, you know, Harry says that he thinks Marcone learned more about Harry than Harry did about Marcone, um, which is interesting. And we'll see how it goes um he's a businessman he makes another another comment to him as he's getting out of the car um 
that you know it's it's good business to be polite to people uh, and that's something that marcone marcone is a businessman he thinks of himself as a businessman mm-hmm. um which is important and that's why he doesn't go out of his way to cause pain if people need to die they'll die but he's not going to kill innocents um which again makes him just a really interesting foil to harry as we get through this series um so uh they match souls harry says he doesn't he's not sure what people see when they soul gaze him um it did make one woman pass out uh his soul's not somewhere he likes to poke around um he he doesn't like to think about the type of man he is which is a recurring theme we get through um you know later he mentions he doesn't have any mirrors in his home and he gives a plausible excuse for it but i really do think it, it ties back to he's not sure he's a good guy um which again is is the shades of gray are just really interesting um you know it's a guy that that doesn't like who he is and he doesn't know how to fix himself um and that, that's at least the, the take i got from the first mm-hmm. couple chapters you know he'd rather keep it buried down and not you know keep his eyes down and, and do his thing and go through life um than really do some introspection and see who he is um kind of a common theme in most people yeah. Oh, absolutely. If you think about it, like, you know, when, like, you don't want to necessarily gaze into your own soul because you would be reminded of all the bad things, all the bad parts of yourself. Absolutely. It's that balance of. of I'm, dis- the- I'm disappointed every time I walk by a mirror. I'm, I'm with Harry. <laughs> um, he, uh, he, he turns down the offer and kind of like a scared child says, you wouldn't want to cross me, Marcone. That wouldn't be smart. That wouldn't be smart at all. Um, Very noir though. Can't you hear it in like a bogey voice? Oh, absolutely. Like, uh, dick tracy um and then uh, that's when he tells him you know you should be more polite it's good for business and uh <laughs> they finally get to the to this office harry runs inside to meet monica no last name all right so we are monica no last name is standing outside of his office when he arrives and uh, she's writing a note on the note he left on his door um he just gets there in time and again she's a woman so we're gonna get a nice we're going to know exactly Just what she looks exactly. like. Exactly. <laughs> she was a good looking woman does. in her mid 30 somethings, ash blonde hair that I thought must be natural after a morbid and involuntary memory of the dead woman's die job. Talks about her makeup. Talks about, you know, it's very descriptive of what she looks like. Uh, so we go inside and, you know, he kind of gives a rundown of the story. Her husband's missing. He's not mysteriously missing or anything. Just gone. Okay, kind of an interesting description. Um, and that her husband has been dabbling in magic. And he's, yeah, he's been buying books on, the, in the, on it in the religion section of the bookstore. Not like those Dungeons and Dragons games, the real thing. He bought some of those tarot cards. She pronounced it like tarot, like carrot. <laughs> tarot cards, which is hilarious. Um, okay. So we learn he's been interested in music. I mean, sorry, he's been interested in magic. Uh, and he's gone, but not like mysteriously gone. But he's been gone for three days, which is concerning to her. Um, and he kind of starts to describe to Monica and to us at the same time about magic. Uh, he tells her there are powers in the universe that most people don't even know. Powers that we still don't fully understand. The men and women who work with these powers see things in a different light than regular people. They come to understand things in a different way. So that's a little bit of the deeper level of what the powers in the, what magic is, the powers in the universe. Um, he 
you know, he says, you know what? Yeah, I know you've, you know, there's unwarranted suspicion and fear. I know you've read books and seen movies about how horrible people like me are and that the whole suffer not a witch to live part of the Old Testament hasn't made things all roses. And it, he's just basically saying like, I'm just a normal dude. I just, you know, have a little different connection to the universe. Um, and so he, she hires him. Um, he gives, she gives him $500 cash advance. And he says, this is one of the greatest things. Uh, makes you wonder what his rent is. He says it would take care of last month's rent and a good bit of this month's too. Must be nice. $500 is last month's and part of this month's in downtown Chicago. I mean, it's 2000. This is not 1940. So that's always entertaining. Um, and it's in cash, which is great. Uh, so he also, she, she gives him a couple of envelopes. Uh, first, it was the money. It's all in 50s. Um, and then in the next one was a photo. Where do you get 10 $50 bills? You have to go to the bank. You have to specifically ask the bank. Yeah. For 50s. That's just yeah. And they're, they're new and fresh, which is as all 50s tend to be. Yeah. Because, because um, nobody ever uses 50. Yeah. Just a strange. Um, and so the, the next he gave, she gave him a couple envelopes. One of them was a, the, a, a photo of him and it's Monica and a man again, the least description of a guy. Lean and handsome features with a wide forehead, shaggy eyebrows that screwed his handsomeness off into a rather eccentric angle. His smile was whiter than white. His skin had the smooth, dark tan of someone who spends a lot of time in the sun. That's it. That's all. That's our description of Victor Sells. Uh, okay, and then the next, uh, there was a index card with a telephone number in it. Uh, no name or area code, just a seven-digit number. In uh, that, you know, was her number. And also is in, included in this is a, uh, she talks about the lake house at the own that he might've retreated to and a creepy scorpion charm that she says Victor's been using. It's right. a dried up scorpion, um, glistening with some kind of preservative glaze. And you know, it's a little creepy. It's, he sticks it in a, uh, in a drawer cause it, it did totally creep him out. Uh, he thought it was moving in the corner of his eye. He, yeah. he, 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 knock, he doesn't move it into a drawer. He knocks it into a drawer with like a piece of paper or something. It's just like, yep. <laughs> I love how, he, how squirmy he is for a wizard. Oh, yeah. But I mean, hey, I would be too. Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's like, you know, and he, at the chapter ends with, so I have a problem with creepy dead poisonous things. So sue me. Absolutely fantastic line. And on to chapter five. There's a line I'm gonna similar to that from the first mm -hmm. chapter. That's my that's my my line of the week. Um, where it just talks about him being all creeped out by stuff. Mm -hmm. um, all right, so next chapter, uh, Harry. Um, he's got that money burning a hole in his pocket, so he heads over to McAnally's Pub, which is a pub for wizards uh, and the supernatural in Chicago. All the outcasts and underworld types. Um, non-normies in Chicago will hang out here. Uh, it's a really cool description of the place. It's a pub's pub. There's no TVs, no jukebox, no games. Um, it's got 13 tables, 13 columns, 13 stools, um, and 13 fans up top. Um, there's a wood-burning stove, and he makes his own ale. Um, this, this is a man's man's uh, kind of place, uh, McAnally's. Mm -hmm. I love it. Um, I want to go 
go to a place. We don't get a great description of Mac, which is obviously. I mean, he's a. Uh, but it's it's funny. He doesn't. He's not sure how old he is. Kind of a balding, youngish, middle-aged man. Um, yeah, it's just it is kind of ridiculous. Uh, but among the male gazy, you know, uh, descriptions we get of the women compared with the descriptions of men, even among those, this still stands out as a as very a very thin um, description. You know what I mean? Like even compared to other men, oh, yeah. there's like we got nothing on Mac, which is weird. I mean, he's a character that's in the book, you know, throughout the, shows up a couple times throughout the novel. Um, and you really never do get a good description of him in this one. Um, he makes a he he makes a mean steak sandwich, and um, his brown ale is apparently to die for. So uh, Harry uses some of the money he got from Monica, and he gets himself lunch. As he's waiting, um, we get a visitor, and uh, he smells her he smells her perfume, and but uses it as uh, you know to show his wizardly skill, and uh, knows that it's Susan Rodriguez. <laughs> He says, Miss Rodriguez, without turning around. Um, and yeah, he, he lets her use, think he's using his wizardly powers um, you know, to try to mystify people and, and keep them off guard. Um, you know, it's very different from how Marcone projects his power. He kind of keep he just is mm -hmm. who he is and is powerful. Harry's trying to project power. You know, again, it shows that insecurity, you know? Yes. Um, just a small character moment, but I, it just kind of stands out to me. Um, she tries to get some information out of him. She's a reporter for a yellow rag called the, the Midwestern Arcane. I think they call it the Chicago Arcane, but it, it gets bought out by Big Arcane, I guess. It's later on, it's called the Midwestern Arcane. Um, and uh, she, it's a newspaper um, about the supernatural in and around Chicago. And some of the stuff they talk about is true. Some of it is, you know, Elvis is alive and there's a bat baby by the river and stuff. Um, they mention, is this the chapter where they mention the, the unsealy incursion into Milwaukee? Uh, yes. Where it, it was it four minutes or whatever that it disappeared for. And yeah, just I, whatever, a couple hours, a couple minutes, the entire city of Milwaukee just disappeared. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just, just kind of cool. Just peeling back the onion. Like some people know that supernatural stuff exists and it, mm -hmm. it has happened, but the mainstream media just no, kind of glosses over it. It's like in it's like in Ghostbusters, don't? Isn't it in Ghostbusters where they talk about the National Enquirer? Maybe I think. So. Sorry, really old movie reference, but that it just popped into my head. Where it's there's one of those movies along those lines where they talk about the National Enquirer and how some of the stuff in the Enquirer actually is real. Yeah, they actually get it right sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, Same concept, and like I love the, it. Like the Quibbler. Yes. Um, yes. Exactly. You're a wizard, Harry. That's the other thing I had to comment on this. <laughs> um, yeah, there's actually one later on in the novel, a kid mentions reading the arcane and, and recognizing Harry's picture from, or Harry from a picture mm -hmm. in it. So clearly it's, it's pretty widespread, but it's, I think like the Inquirer, it's not taken super seriously. I think that was a good, uh, good reference. I think, yeah. um, so she's trying to pry information out of him. He says no, but she uses her feminine wiles to trick him into a date. Um, pretty girls don't really have to trick guys into agreeing to dates, but in this case she does. Um, and uh, 
that's Saturday at nine o'clock. And that I'm sure won't be important to us. Um, they're going to get steaks that are to die for at some fancy restaurant where you need to wear a jacket and a tie. Um, she asks to make sure that Harry owned those pieces of equipment. Uh, but they set up the date and they move on. Uh, she mentions two people who are attracted to each other. And he says, uh, which people? <laughs> so they have a flirtatious kind of relationship. And, and you know, he talks, talks to himself as like this kind of ugly dude, but he's got a gorgeous journalist who's got a lot going on for, her and you know, who's into him. And again, I think that's just kind of that lack of confidence he has, which permeates um, kind of his whole being. Um, and this is the chapter I think I, I missed it a little bit earlier, but it is important where, and I mentioned it as kind of the one piece of world building and, um, expo uh, exposition that I really don't like, doesn't feel natural is when he's flipping through the newspaper and, you know, he's talking to Mac and yes. says, Oh, another three eye incident He's three eye binger, you know, these junkies on three eye, which they just mentioned the drug that will become prominent later in the story that supposedly opens a, no a non-wizard's sight. So they get the wizard's third sight, the, you know, the, the third eye kind of thing where they get to open up and see the world for how it really is, which um, sounds interesting. I mean, I would try it. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's just kind of a cool, interesting, uh, kind of a spooky drug um, in, in this reality. But again, that, that just, I think he does a great job weaving in, you know, even when, when he was, talking to Monica about how magic works, you know, yep. weaving, weaving it naturally into the story. And it, it just kind of is a little janky in this chapter. That's the one piece of it that I felt was, you could see kind of the him exposition for exposition's sake, rather than for part of the story. Yeah, exactly. But um, beyond that, um, you know, a, a good chapter, we meet another recurring character in Susan Rodriguez and um, we move on. All right. In chapter six, our man goes back to his home to gather some supplies to go to the lake house. The things he grabs from the kitchen include fresh baked bread with no preservatives, honey, milk, a fresh apple, a sharp silver penknife, and a tiny dinner set of a plate, bowl, and cup that I had carved myself from a block of teakwood. And in my head, that's very interesting collection of things like he's making a little meal a meal for somebody um this is also where we are introduced very little meal <laughs> very little meal but when he says that he'd carved himself out of a block of teakwood in my head it was much bigger like person sized yeah a little like or child size is what i was thinking uh anyway we're introduced to the ble beetle which really isn't blue anymore which as a first time reader i'm like well, oh, okay <laughs> this is the blue beetle his trusty steed yes later it is referenced as a blue beetle but here it's not it's just the beetle and it uh, isn't a, really blue a, anymore there's a couple places in the actual printed novel mm -hmm. that are very clearly like they just somebody an editor somewhere accidentally deleted stuff and like yeah didn't re realize it there's a couple sentences like just two or three places that people have noticed yeah um which again, just kind of shows you this is a fly by night kind of organization. This is, this is a, and it's grown into this giant phenomenon of mm -hmm. now 18 novels and a ton of short stories. But at this point, he couldn't even get someone to copy paste his novel correctly into the pages. Yeah. And that's, you know, hey, it happens. Okay. So, and the interesting, I, I do love the description of the Beatle. Um, the both doors have been placed, one with the green, one with white. Uh, and the hood of the storage trunk in front had to be replaced with red, but the name's still the Blue Beetle. 
And this is like another great, just, it's almost a throwaway line, but it kind of gives you perspective on the shit this dude's seen. Uh, he never asked, que- his Mike, his super mechanic, never asked questions about the burns that slagged a hole in the front hatch or the car marks that ruined both doors. You can't pay for service like that. <laughs> Which is great. Uh, okay, so let's see here. He uh, snoop- heads out to the lake house. He snoops around a wee bit. Um, he picks up a film canister. And he summons Tutu. Uh, and this is another, we learn a little bit more about magic. And there are two parts of magic you have to understand to catch a fairy. One of them is the concept of true names. Everything in the whole world has its own name. Names are unique sounds and cadences of words that are attached to one specific individual. Sort of like a kind of theme music. If you know something's name, you can associate yourself with it in a magical sense. Almost in the same way a wizard can reach out and touch someone if he possesses a lock of their hair or fingernail clippings or blood. If you know something's name, you can create a magic link to it, just as you can call someone up and talk to them if you know their phone number. Just knowing the name isn't good enough, though. You have to know exactly how to say it. Ask two John Franklin Smiths to say their names for you, and you'll get subtle differences in tone and pronunciation, each one unique to its owner. Wizards tend to collect names of creatures, spirits, and people, like some kind of huge Rolodex. You never know when it will come in handy. And this is actually uh, in, I believe it's Celtic fairies. um, If a fairy knows your name, they can control you. Uh, So you never, you know, you never, you would never tell a fairy your name or anything supernatural. So I love this, this reference to um, the names. Name is power. Uh, And so... We've got that bit of magic. And then the other part of magic we're introduced to is the magic circle theory. Uh, most of magic involves a circle one kind or another. And so this let, is- let, let, me, uh-huh. let me touch real quick. Mm-hmm. It's, it's funny the juxtaposition there of talking about how important names are and how flippantly and quickly he comes up with nicknames for things and people. Mm-hmm. Monica, no last name, Cujo. Um, you know, he, when he was talking about Marcone's bodyguard, um, and he does that again throughout the series, he'll just instantly like come up with names for things that are great as a reader, but it's just funny because of how important true names are. Mm-hmm. And he just kind of throws around these fake names, um, just, you know, kind of flippantly. It's just, it's just a funny. It's a, just great power kind of like how he is so aware of the power. It's that self-awareness. Absolutely. So much self-awareness. Okay. So we're talking about magic circles. And this I really love because um, circles are you are themes of power in like uh, paganism and witchcraft and a lot of things have circles. And so this is really cool that the way he drawing a circle that sets a local limit on what a wizard is trying to do. Refine and focus magic. Direct it more clearly. Creates a sort of screen. A defined perimeter. But it's also kind of a clarity thing. Keeps magical energy from going past it, containing things within, containing things without. Uh, he talks about how he does it, drawing a circle on the ground, um, using people, like in a seance, closing the circle, kind of stuff like that. Uh, and it, the one other thing a circle does, it keeps magic creatures like fairies or even demons from getting past it. Foreshadowing. Uh, it's used it- to keep them out. But in, in this is he's trying to keep something in. And that's where blood comes into play. With blood comes power. Again, this is something that across all sorts of magic in any culture, blood has power. 
it's a metaphysical significance and it's energy. And, and if, you know, if you throw in vampires, you've got a whole other kind of blood and power. Well, what's interesting about this, and I just want to bring it back and this, maybe this is just me and I'm, I'm a weird, I mean, I'm clearly, I'm a weird guy, but like, that was just a straight exposition dump mm-hmm. of how magic works, mm-hmm. but it's still, maybe it's just because it's more interesting to me than three eye, but I felt like that was great. Like, I love reading yeah. that every time. Like if I miss part of that, like, you know, I usually have it on in the background when I'm driving or something. I'll go back and re-listen to that because I love that description, but that is just exposition. And I love it. And, and then him reading the newspaper pisses me off every time. It's so weird. I, I don't, like, I probably the only person who cares about these things, but like, I don't know. It's I, that, the way that, it's it's the way it's sent. But this actually going back to you know my in my corner investigator stuff. This reminds me of how I describe things when I'm on scene. If I'm on scene with a brand new cop or deputy or whatever, and they want to know what I'm doing, I'll explain it. I'll explain the decompositional process. I'll say, okay, well, you know, see this this green is this is why it's happening. It happens first on the lower abdomen, and you know, the different things of why why there's why there's bubbles, why there's there's fluid in between. It's the breakdown of this, that, and the other thing where it's not necessarily has anything to do with my scene, but I am explaining something, and that's kind of how I see, I read this as we're there with Harry, and he he's is walking dry, us he, through the process. He's yeah. walking us through what he's doing and why, and I love that. And that's in my head. That's how I saw it. Where I'm standing there with Harry and like, uh-huh. Okay. So we're drawing. Okay. Drawing circles. Okay. They're important. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh, okay. Cool. And that's just how I saw it. And I love it. And that's, it's, it's the, not necessarily the information, but it's how it's given. And it's kind of like neat, huh? Like it's conversational. Where in the, the three eye out of the newspaper wasn't conversational. It was just heavy handed. Yeah. yeah. I like it. Yeah. And it's fantastic. Okay. So this is where he summons Tutu. And Tutu is a fairy. Maybe six inches tall, had silver dragonfly wings sprouting from his back, and the pale, beautiful, tiny humanoid form that echoed, echoed the splendor of fey lords. A silver nimbus of ambient light surrounded him. His hair was sh- a shaggy, silken little mane, like a bird of paradise plumes, and was pale magenta. Great visual. Oh, I love Tutu. But now we <laughs> learn why Dresden gathered those supplies. He loved bread, milk, and honey, the common vice of a lesser fay. And when he was, when Dresden was putting this stuff in the circle, he pricked his finger and, and, and got it on the blood, basically. So we learned that the blood's going to keep Tutu in the circle, and the bread, milk, and honey is going to draw him to it. Uh, and it's fantastic. It's absolutely great. He, so, he also says his name, capital A. But he, yes. won't tell, he, but he won't tell us who, what his name is. It's very much like, why would I tell you that? Yeah. Uh, again, because of the importance of names. Uh, so, you know, we learn about Tutu. Tutu is just, I can just see him with his, his fists on his hips. And like, um, <laughs> like Tinkerbell. Yeah. In my head, he is Tinkerbell. Uh, only can use words. Um, and so he's basically, so Dresden actually, you know, anybody been around the lake house? And so Tutu said, okay, I'm going to go and, and do some reconnaissance, get some a little bit of information. And so he comes back and says there was a pizza delivery to mortals who had been sporting and needed to recover their strength. Sporting is sex. Um, Tutu, uh, fairies and food. Fairies love pizza, apparently. And he asks, uh, well, you what? pizza and didn't invite me? Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, but it's very much also, uh, you know, it's... You know, there was a pizza driver. And he says, okay, well, what pizza place? 
Harry, the pizza truck. The... Just like there, there was just one. <laughs> or he Absolutely doesn't care. Famous. Just yeah. the pizza truck. It's the pizza truck. They're he brings pay- pizza. Who gives a mm-hmm. shit what he's called? Doesn't pay attention to the details. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, in this... Victor was quote unquote sporting. So this kind of gives a real normalcy to the Monica no name case. Um, her husband's cheating on her. You know? Okay. Because there's and, a juxtaposition of the two cases. One is very clearly magical driven, and this just seems like a dude, you know, boning his mistress at, at their lake house. Exactly. Um, and so we, we also kind of learned that the fairies have been keeping an eye on Harry. We don't know why, but we know that they have. And this is also where we meet Morgan. Uh, great kind of intro. Is a man with a naked sword in his hands appeared out of the darkness. Silent. He was tall, broad, and heavy-chested. Um, 50 years old, listless brown hair. Again, this is a much more detailed description of Morgan, of a male. But it's um, it's... Kind of because he's important. He began to deliberately walk towards me, speaking in, in a quiet voice as he did. Harry Blackstone, Blackstone, Copperfield, Dresden. Irresponsible use of true names for summoning and binding others to your will violates the fourth law of magic, the man intoned. I remind you that you are under the doom of Damocles. No further violations of the law will be tolerated. The sentence for further violation is death by the sword to be carried out at once. That's a doom and gloom way to end that par- that chapter. Oh, it's great. It's, but it's fantastic and you can hear it. You can almost hear it. It's fan- uh, It's really well done. Um, and Morgan is a reoccurring character that is an interesting one. Oh, yeah. So he, uh, one of the things I loved about that is, and uh, you mentioned this, is that he, he said his name almost precisely correct. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, uh, presumably, if this guy is a wizard cop, he's going to be a powerful wizard, um, and he, uh, yeah, it's scary if a powerful wizard knows your name. We've already know what we've already know. we just discussed how important names and intonation. And Harry told us that's his full name at the beginning of the book. So exactly. Um, so the giant man with a mile and a half long of a mile and a half of naked steel coming at him. I like. Um, he's the warden, a warden of the white council. Uh, the white council is the kind of the wizard governing body ministry of magic for lack of a better. Um, he, um, and he's a warden. He's basically a a wizard cop. Um, and, and he's specifically for Harry because he's under that doom of Damocles. He's his parole officer. He checks in and makes sure he doesn't get up to no good. Um, he, he mentioned earlier that he, he murdered his first love or does he mention that later? I don't remember, but. Um, he's, he's already said he's, he's killed somebody uh, at some point in his past, which is the first law of magic. Uh, the fourth law having something to do with, um, binding creatures against their will, um, or, you know, mind magic of some sort. Um, and the doom of Damocles, like, like he said, that you get no second chances. The next one you, you get your head snipped. Um, and Morgan and a lot of other people in the White Council actually feel like it was an injustice that he didn't get killed for the first, his first uh, crime. And um, yeah, we, we learn later that he killed his mentor. Um, this, and that's not something we know yet, but it's, I don't think it's super spoilery. Um, it certainly doesn't change 
the way you look at the book, but um, he got into a fight with a wizard more powerful than him and somehow ended up winning. Um, but in doing so, he used magic to kill somebody. And that mm. when you break the laws of magic, whether you know about the laws or not before you break them, you are guilty. Um, and, and that's a, an important plot point that comes up a lot later. Um, you know, what a, what a war, they call that a warlock when you're a, you're a sorcerer who's breaking the laws, you're a warlock. And um, it damages your, your brain basically when you commit black magic. Um, um, and yeah, we learn about that a, a little bit later, but, uh, he's, he's basically up against it as far as he, you know, he, he has to watch his step with the white council. Um, he can't mess around too much. He definitely can't break any more laws. Um, you know, I, I've said it before. I, again, this is, it's not spoilery because it's not actually from the books, but it's something butcher has said that there are seven laws of magic. We learn about some of them as we've gotten through it. I don't even know if I know all seven. Um, off the top of my head, I probably couldn't get them all. But um, over the course of the novel series, Butcher says that, uh, the author says that Dresden's going to break all seven laws, which I just think is funny and interesting. And um, I'm curious to see how that goes. It's great. Um, it's great pre-planning too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Again, you know, you've got these great plot elements that you can, you've got the the big picture and you just have to fill in the blanks. And, and that's kind of, that's a great storytelling, kind of very Buffy the Vampire, like where things are, you know, in that storytelling way where you've got these things that you can build on and, and, and little hints are given here and there. And I just love that. I mean, that's, that's brilliant storytelling. Um, he does a great job. The foreshadowing is great. And it, it gets mm -hmm. better again as, as he gets more confident in his writing, but also more confident in his belief. Storytelling. Well, his belief that there's going to be more books, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. You, you can spend more time on that stuff when you you're pretty confident that it, this thing's taken off. Um, but, um, you know, he got away, he got away with murder the first time because the, he said that he was attacked first and the corpse wasn't going to argue. Um, and hmm. he, there's another technicality. Morgan nah. says it's a nah. technicality that he was trying to, um, he was summoning a fairy, not a human. And he's like, yeah, it's a technicality that I am prepared to wildly hide behind. <laughs> um, but, uh. The letter of the law is super important in all of the things supernatural. You know, we know that in the past with fairies, he mentioned it with Toot Toot, like Toot could come back and whisper it in his ear when he was asleep. And that would count as his side of the deal. Um, it's not about, it's not about the, the feeling behind the laws. It's, it's what does the law exactly say? Um, it has to be explicit. So those technicalities are important. Um, and it's, it's, you know, clearly it's clear enough that Morgan puts his sword away. And when he puts his sword away, he's no longer a warden. He's just a dude being a dick. And so Harry does what well, we all want to do to dudes who are being a dick. He punches him in the face. Um, uh, at this point, Morgan mentions that he thinks Harry is the murderer. He thinks he killed Tommy Tom. He killed Linda Randall. Um, or Jennifer Stanton. Jennifer Stanton. Jennifer Stanton. We don't know who Linda Randall is yet. Spoiler. No. Um, I'm really good at this, clearly. Um, he killed Jennifer Stanton. Uh, he killed Tommy Tom. And um, Morgan doesn't think for himself. Harry, Morgan mm -hmm. thinks Harry killed these people. The White Council thinks Harry killed these people. Or at least somebody very important on the White Council uh, thinks this. And then, for good measure, Morgan decks Harry because... Why not? He's the, the same pound, same height as Harry, but has 100 pounds of muscle on him, and he just got sucker punched. So. 
Uh, yeah, you don't don't do that to to guys that are hundred pounds heavier than you. Uh, generally, a bad idea. I, I probably wouldn't punch that guy. Call me crazy. Um, I mean, reasonable. The, the exact definition of the kind of guy I would not punch: a cop with a giant sword who has a hundred pounds on me. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Harry mentions he's already com- he's already been found guilty of committing one murder, and when you're a cop, you have a crime. You you go look at look for criminals, which makes sense. Um, so that they would look at look for Harry. Um, but um, obviously Harry's not our guy. But um, it makes sense that he would be worried about it. And so we, we met Morgan, and we learned a little bit about the White Council and uh, the Doom of Damocles. And um, he heads on home. And so Harry heads home, and we learned that he has no hobbies other than magic. Nerd. Some sort, he says, I'm a sort of arcane equivalent of a classic computer geek. I do magic in one form or another, and that's pretty much it. And he says he needs to get a life, and he kind of does. We also learn a little bit about his apartment. He lives in a basement apartment underneath a big roomy old house that has been divided up into a bunch of different apartments. In my head, this is a Victorian house, one of those old Victorian houses that's just been broken up, which happens in pretty much every city where there's old Victorian houses. A boarding house. What's a boarding when- like a, a boarding house, um, yeah, kind no of boarding but, house. Um, uh, boarding houses in, would be basically kind of like the concept of like a, a bed and breakfast, where one person would would own the house and and rent out rooms. And often, like single females, would there would be a, a lot of boarding houses in big cities would be sing, all for single females, and they'd have uh, basically a house mother kind of person who was their landlady, but also um, they'd have strict rules. Uh, in in you know in the ones I'm familiar with, uh, you know, men couldn't come over. They couldn't have visitors outside of certain hours, outside of the the common areas, like the living, the sitting room and things like that. And they had curfews. Um, sorry, there's my historical nerdiness. All right. So <laughs> um, we, we, we meet Mr. Mr. is kitty cat. Um, Mr.'s waiting for him at the bottom of the stairs. Uh, so he was out and about. And he, <laughs> the description of Mr. is fantastic. Mr. is an enormous gray cat. I mean, enormous. There are dogs smaller than Mr. He weighs in at just over 30 pounds, and there isn't an undue amount of fat on his frame. So he's a moose. A <laughs> moosey, moosey, moosey kitty. A big and kid. I love it. And he's um, not a fan of dogs or cars. Which is not, not sure which one took his tail, but yeah, he hates so them. great. Uh, but the... The description of Mr. He says, uh, he sauntered over to me and rammed one shoulder playfully against my knee. I wavered, recovered balance, and unlocked the door. So, you know, Mr. likes to give a little, sh- throw a little shoulder, a little hip check. It's fantastic. Um, so, and we learn the basic description of the flat, um, which actually comes into play later. He says, my apartment is a studio, not one, uh, one not too large room with a kitchenette at the corner and a fireplace to one side. There's a door that leads to the other room, my bedroom, and a bathroom, which it's not a studio if there's a separate door to the bedroom. Yeah, it's, a bedroom. it's a one-bedroom. It's a one-bedroom. There's a door that leads to the other room, uh, and there's a hinged door on the floor that goes down to my sub-basement where I keep my lab. Two-bedroom. All right. One-bedroom with a loft. Ooh, hey. Or, uh... What's the opposite of basement, a loft? Basement. Basement. <laughs> I couldn't think of the word. Okay. And so now he, com- he consults Bob. Um, Bob's a memory spirit that lives in a skull. Uh, 
pair of lights come up in the empty sockets of the skull. They're kind of orange candle flames, which totally makes me think of one of those Halloween decorations. Fabulous. Um, and uh, as someone who loves puns, he says, Bob, come on, lazy bones, which is fantastic because he's in a skull. And he says, isn't it, it isn't enough, the skull said, that I have to wake up. I have to wake up to bad puns. What is it with you that you have to make the bad puns? I love it. I, I do love bad puns. My 11-year-old nephew and I tell each other bad puns all the time. Uh, okay. So we learn about Bob. And um, one of the, again, my forensic background. I study forensic anthropology. And uh, he, uh, Bob tells Harry that you're trivializing what, I get, what getting out for a bit means to me, Harry. You're insulting my masculinity. And Bob says, you're a skull. You don't have any masculinity to insult, which actually most of your features and sex in a biological profile of a skull come from the pelvis and the skull. So a skull would give you a lot of masculine traits. I'm just saying. Again, nerding out. There are certain things I nerd out about. That's one of them. Um, yeah. Fair enough. And then Bob insults him about masculinity and, you know, most men have be something better to do in the middle of the night than play with their chemistry set. And that's when he basically tells Bob that he's got a date on Saturday night. And again, this is a little bit of our trying to be noiry, I guess. Um, but he's more, it's cringy woman stuff. Ooh, he leered. Is she pretty? Dark skin, dark hair, dark eyes, legs to die for. Smart, sexy as hell. Bob chortled. Think she'd like to see the lab? <laughs> Goodness gracious. All right, so on to See, mixing up a problem with, with with when Bob is. I don't know. I mean, I'm clearly I'm a very privileged male, but I don't have a problem when Bob when Bob does it. It's mostly just every other character. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. But it's just, it's a long. It's just you know those those through lines of a little bit of cringy. Uh, okay, so this is we're going to make an escape potion, and. The process of mixing up an alchemical potion is largely stirring, simmering, and waiting. And uh, Bob says, you know, if we're making one, why don't you make two? You got room for it. And Bob says, ah, we should try something new, like a love potion. It's like, you won't let me out. At least let's do a love potion. And he's like, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. So Bob says, fine. You don't do a love potion. We're not doing an escape potion. And, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And then we get into the description of what uh, potions in entail. And this is a another piece of world building that's fantastic. Um, so potions are pretty much made the same way. Um, you need a base to formulate the liquid content, then something to engage each of the senses, and then something for the mind and something else for the spirit. Eight ingredients all in all. And they're different from each other and for each and every potion and for each person who makes them. So Bob has centuries of experience making potions and he can extrapolate the most successful components for that given person to help them make a potion. And so that's why Bob's such a great resource because Bob's got this experience and he can kind of has this preternatural kind of understanding of how to make these potions that work best for this person that's making them. Um, so the escape potion is made with a base of eight ounces of Jolt Cola. Love that <laughs> reference, which is super dated because it was born. It was too, it was made in two thousand. But Jolt Cola was a super caffeinated, super sugar soda. Oh, it was disgusting. Uh, 
Um, so, yeah, it was like you could taste the caffeine. It was like bitter. Oh yeah, kind of covered it up with all the sugar. Oh, it was awful. Oh, so much sugar. And I, I think we found out that um, Jolt Cola contains five point nine milligrams of caffeine per fluid ounce and ten teaspoons of sugar. Jesus, and that's like ridiculous. Shout out uh, to our our research assistant. Yes, our research Everett. assistant Everett. Uh, okay, so Jolt Cola added a drop of motor oil for the smell of it. Cut birds, fe- cut a bird's feather into tiny shavings for the tactile value. Remember something for every sense. So we've got smell, we've got touch. Uh, three ounces of chocolate-covered espresso beans ground into powder went in next for taste. Then a shredded bus ticket I'd never used for the mind. A small chain which I broke and then dropped in for the heart. I unfolded a clean white cloth where it had a flickering shadow stored for just an occasion and tossed it into the brew. I then opened up a glass jar where I kept my mouse scampers which is a sound, and tapped into the sound onto the beaker where the potion was brewing. I love that, that you're keeping a shadow in a cloth and a sound in a jar. I love these little magical elements. Great, great world building. Oh, awesome. Absolutely love it. It's fantastic. Um, so he creates, a, he creates this, this potion, and they create a love potion which the base is tequila. I thought it was going to be champagne. Uh, it's supposed to be champagne. But Bob says, champagne, tequila, what's the difference? So long as it'll lower our inhibitions. A <sighs> little bit rapey. Um, and so Yikes. he says, I think this is going to go to say, um, please your result. Hey, Bob protested, who's the memory spirit here, me or you? And then who's got all the experience with women here, me or you? Harry, Bob lectured me. I was seducing shepherdesses when you weren't a twinkle in your great-grandsister's eyes. I think I know what I'm doing. (laughs) So they used tequila. Uh, And then three ounces of dark chocolate because, quote, chicks are into chocolate, Harry. And then a drop of perfume, an ounce of shredded lace, a sigh at the bottom of a jar, candlelight to the mix, and it took on a rosy golden glow. And Bob said, that's, a, that's just right. Now we need the ashes of a passionate love letter. Fresh out, Bob. Uh, yeah, fresh out of that. Bob snorted, how did I guess? Look at the shelf behind me. Found a pair of romance novels. Their covers filled with impossibly delightful fresh flesh. Um, page 174, the paragraph that starts with her milky white breast. Tear that page out and burn it and add those ashes in. I love Bob. I just, I just do. And... Dresden says, will that work? Hey, women eat these things up. Trust me. Fine. Is this a spirit ingredient? Uh-huh. Now just a teaspoon of powdered diamond and we're done. Diamond? I don't have any diamonds, Bob. Uh, he says, you're cheap. That's why women don't like you. Just tear up a 50 into real little pieces and put it in there. Again, so sexist, but it's funny when it's Bob. I don't know. Uh-huh. <laughs> Money, Bob opined. Very sexy. Very sexy. Very sexy. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not good. It's it's no, not a it's not a good no. paragraph. Uh, but it's chapter. A little bit noiry though. It's that oh, absolutely. Um, but the next step is where the effort came in. All the ingredients are mixed together. You have to force enough energy into them to activate them. It's the meaning, the significance 
behind that they have for the person making the potion. And that's kind of cool. Again, this is more world building. The energy for magic comes from a lot of places. It can come from a special place, like a spectacular natural site, like Mount St. Heavens or World Facial, some kind of, uh, from a focus of some kind, like Stonehenge, or from inside of people. The best magic comes from inside. We talk, this is where we learn about willpower, raw willpower. Sometimes it's emotions and feelings. All of them are viable Tinder to be used for the proverbial fire. I had a lot of worry to use to fuel the magic and a lot of annoyance and one hell of a lot of stubbornness. He does a little quasi Latin spell throwing and throws his magic in, throws that, in, that, that intent, that will, will into it. And uh, we bubble, bubble, toil and trouble and poof, they're done. Uh, puts them into some sports bottles and marks them with a Sharpie, which is <laughs> delightful. Um, and so then he, uh, he, he, tries, he, he says, I struggle to put together an itinerary for the next couple of days through the haze of exhaustion. Talk to the vampire, locate missing husband, avoid the wrath of the white council, find the killer before he found me. It's a bit of a busy, uh, busy schedule there, if you ask me. But, and then he passes out because he wore him the hell out. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. And then Harry, um, it's a running theme throughout these novels and in this book as well, um, that Harry does the exact opposite of what he tells Murphy he'll do. Um, he heads <laughs> to the Velvet Room to confront Bianca the vampire. Uh, the vampress, they call her, which is a weird term that doesn't come up very much later in the mm-hmm. uh, series. Um, they just call, call them vampires later on, but vampress is fine, I guess. I don't have a problem with it. Um, uh, so he goes to see Bianca. She runs the like a high-class uh, escort service out of the Velvet Room. Um and she she seems to also think that Harry murdered um, Jennifer and Tommy, which is interesting. Um, and again, it, it's something we see. I'm I'm 18 novels and a bunch of short stories in, so I, I you know I have a different perspective on a lot of this stuff. But it's definitely something we see where Harry doesn't realize what people think of him. You know, we talked earlier about he feels like he's oh he's so ugly, but like you know all these chicks are into him. Um, he, which isn't necessarily a thing, but you know, just he just has all these. He, he um, I, I sound kind of incelly. Um, he, <laughs> he he has you know he has this power that that he underestimates, and certainly Morgan thought he was a killer. Um, it just he doesn't understand. He has no no clue, no conception of what people think about him. Um, and, and this is a you know Bianca's a freaking vampire. And she's terrified of him. They all think he did this, that he's this murderer. Um, mm-hmm. And none of them are sure why he did it. Which, um, you know, when you don't know why someone powerful is doing crazy stuff, that's even more scary. You know, so um, it's, a, it's a really, you know, it's a relatively short scene, but there's some really cool stuff in it. You know, that's certainly that character moment with Harry, you know, just completely being caught off guard again, that people think he's the guy. Um, and then... Um, you know, when she jumps at him, he throws uh, something at, out of his pocket at her. It's a bit of sunshine trapped in a handkerchief. Um, and he throws that at her and it blasts her with sunlight, which is, again, you know, kind of similar to the shadow and the mouse scampers. You, you can keep non-concrete things as a wizard. You can collect them. Um, and he and keeps he, them in, in um, 
handkerchiefs, which I love. Yeah. The imagery is just amazing. Yeah. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Um, and uh, he throws that at her, and then, again, um, she tries to come at him, and he uses his his mom's pentacle as a necklace that he had. Uh, you know, in most vampire lore, you have crosses. You know, whether it's a crucifix or a cross. You know, in, in Buffy, sometimes they'll just hold two stakes across, you know, across each other perpendicular to make a T shape, um, and that'll keep a vampire back. Um, but here, and again, it kind of ties into what you, you said about the willpower and the will. Um, it's, it's a symbol, of, it's a pinnacle because for him, magic is what he believes in. And so it's a symbol of his faith, the five, the five pointed star in the circle, um, which is a symbol of magical power. And so this keeps her away, just like a cross would for someone who has faith in, in that and presumably other religious symbology would, um, would, would work to keep them away. So long as you have faith in that. Um, which is just a really cool um, idea, just that his faith in wizardry is what keeps her back. Um, you know, you have your spaghetti monster pin, uh, and it, it could could keep them away. Um, just whatever it is that you have belief in, we see that again. The things that are important in this universe aren't always the same as other magical worlds. You know, the belief mm -hmm. and the um, willpower and and just the the power of names and stuff you know it almost makes you know harry potter science fiction you know they there's a specific <laughs> right well i mean like the, you learn the name of a spell and you can do yeah. the spell whereas this is you have to feel it you have to believe it and obviously that is there in that story as well but just the juxtaposition of the two harrys is it's not something we're going to get away from right i mean I, obviously we both read harry potter books and you know we're yeah, for nerdy enough to do a podcast on Dresden, we probably <laughs> we could talk about Star Wars and Harry Potter and stuff, you know. Um, but it's it's inescapable that those two are going to be tied together just because of their names and their occupations, right? Yeah. Um, but I, we'll try not to do it too much. Um, but uh, as he blasts her with the sunlight and the the necklace, we see she's what we call a red court vampire, and we see her flesh mask come off. It's so that she was where she looks like a smoking hot. Um, you know, madam, but she's actually this greasy, gross, hunched over bat like creature wearing like an Ed an Edgar suit. Um, <laughs> yes, she's she's got she's nice got many a, black reference. A, 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 she's got this this suit that makes her look beautiful. Um, but she really is this disgusting creature, and he he saw that underneath. Um, but I like after they have a, you know they have a tete a tete, and he he puts away the um. Pet, the pentacle and he goes to pick up the chair that she knocked over to help her sit back down in it like he did at the beginning to be a gentleman and he let you know pulls the chair out for her she sits down and he pushes it pushes it in underneath her um but in this but she's currently the bat shaped disgusting creature with wings um but she's still wearing her expensive shoes which which I is love. fantastic such a, such a great visual and you can hear the shoes yeah <laughs> like like my brain sees her and you hear the clicky clack of her heels it's fantastic as she tries to get into the chair and she has these big disgusting mm -hmm. eyes um and she you know they have a little bit more back and forth and he tells her i didn't do this um but he's got he's a little bit of blood from his neck and i like that to kind of uh keep her back even though he's basically exhausted all of his tricks he just kind of taps the uh, handkerchief on the table. Just say like, you know, like whatever you got, 
you know, there's more where that came from. Um, and when he put, picks up the chair, he turns his back on her, which is again, just projecting this strength that in other situations he hasn't been able to do. Uh, but here when he's terrified, he does a good job of it. Uh, it's just mm -hmm. kind of funny, almost on accident. He has to kind of swing his D around here just to, to, to get out of here alive. Um, and she sees the blood and it's obviously causing her problems. She tells him about Linda Randall, who's a, you know, a friend of, uh, Jennifer Stanton. And she'd worked with Tommy Tom before. And he says that he's going to give her, he'll give, uh, she'll give Harry her phone number, but get the hell out of here. Um, and we see, you know, one of her, presumably one of her escorts or one of her, you know, someone who works for her comes in and gives, allows Bianca to feed on her. And he mentions, I uh, was first, we hear of uh, vampire venom. Um, their, their saliva has a toxic um, narcotic quality mm -hmm. to it. And um, so she wants to be fed upon and she feeds on him. And she says, you know, when we're done here, I'll send, I'll send my buddy out to give you the number. And Harry gets out front and it turns out they call the front desk. They don't, uh, you know, the guard house, they don't send, the woman doesn't get sent out with the number and he asks why. And it becomes very clear that, um, she lost control and killed her. Bianca, Bianca did. So Bianca killed her and she's going to blame Harry for this. So they, she gives Harry the phone number and there's a one word note written on there that says regret. Um, and that's certainly, you know, who knows when this will come up again, but he's, he's definitely made, a, a, he made a monster lady cry and he um, made a new enemy today. So he hasn't really found out much to solve the case, but he has made a new enemy. So um, definitely, you know, gets our, our hero into some, into a bit of a jam. And um, I think that's probably a good spot to hold it for yeah. this week. Uh, so Dresden made a new friend uh, with his vampire buddy who someone else wants to kill him, which is exciting and very on brand for Dresden. Um, we'll see as we go through this series that more and more people want to kill him. Um, and yeah, so again, we, we mentioned it earlier for this one because we've been trying to get this podcast going. You've actually read this novel a couple times. It's the only piece of Dresden literature you've read, though. So moving forward... Correct. Moving forward, you're going to, you know, we're going to have these breaks in books and you're not going to know the ending. So without giving any spoilers away, kind of, can you remember what kind of your impressions were to this point? Uh, it was, I enjoyed the, again, the world building. Um, I like it when a story can tell you what's going on without being, this is what's going on. Um, I, so my undergrad degree is in playwriting, as you're aware. And one of the things about that is you show, don't tell. And this, while this is all obviously the written word, a lot of it is show, don't tell. And for example, like when we were talking about the... For Chekhov's, and, Chekhov's three eye article. Yeah, exactly. Oh God, the three eye article. Sure, sure, but sure. like when he's talking about, um, like I, how I described the comparison to what I do professionally when he is talking about putting the circle out to catch two. I mean, that's fantastic. And it is showing, not telling, but he's showing us like he's instructing us. 
And I love that aspect of it. That one's the one thing that really stuck out to me was the show Don't Tell. The great world building. I'm a big fan of good world building. And this... Sorry, up com- to comment on that, that thought of show don't tell doesn't mm-hmm. mean your characters can't talk about it, right? It exactly. It be natural. It's not... Exactly. It, it can't stand out. And that's... It really can't be, example. oh, look in this newspaper article. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, that was, I mean, I know up to this point, I was very much, I, I really just devoured this book. Because um, after I got into it, I really did appreciate so much of it. Awesome. I, you know, and that was the thing where it was, like, it was just, it, it really did, the show don't tell. And, I, I you know, I like that you, you mentioned that, that the show don't tell also includes what the characters are saying. But it's not the tap dancing into the center of the screen saying we're giving exposition right now you know that bullshit so which is funny because the because of the way these novels are written it's obviously a first person perspective mm-hmm. she literally is just telling us about magic but it feels so natural yeah in that moment and again i'm gonna go back to that that damn newspaper article it doesn't feel natural because it's but he like needed to put that in there exactly. it's like deus ex 3i article um <laughs> As opposed to now, him walking us through it. Go ahead. What type of first-person narrator narrator are we deciding this is? Omnipotent? He's not omnipotent. Well, omni- omniscient because, is the, the word you're looking for, I think. But right. But um, they mean the same thing. No, no, no. Omniscient. Omnipotent Om- means all powerful. Omniscient means you can see, it. you know everything. Okay, whatever. Um, he's definitely not all knowing, right? I mean, we 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 get that from the first chapter when he says um you know he thinks it's a woman which again kind of out yeah. of place and weird but you know the more i go back and forth on that one and i obviously i've, I've read this these read through this a dozen times probably like i, I really mm-hmm. i'm not going to change a whole lot of my opinions although i do like breaking it down because it gives me a new perspective um it is kind of weird and out of place but he's uncomfortable he's in a scenario and he's just kind of rattling mm-hmm. stuff off it really it, it's not necessarily bad storytelling um because in that moment you know you're uncomfortable you're just saying stuff trying to you know get paid and not look at the corpse and not vomit um i don't really remember where i started for that i just was thinking about that moment uh yesterday (laughs) yeah and and in the whole thing with looking at the corpse and not vomiting that's actually very realistic um I've told you stories about, you know, scenes I've been on and, and, you know, I I, try not to listen. I I drift away. No, I know. I try not to. We're very, we're very different people. Me and my sister. Well, I don't know if I told you. So when I first told Andrea, who's my best friend about my new job as an autopsy assistant, many, many moons ago, she, we went to lunch and she said, Oh my God, tell me all about your new job with nothing gross. And so I said, well, I have a new job. Okay. Yeah. That's about it. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it, I, I've been on scenes where I've had homicide detectives, like, you know, dry heaving in the bushes. And it's just, you know, that was because of uh, CS gas. But, but those, you know, that, that's the thing where it's like you, those, those scenes aren't easy even for homicide detectives. And I've been on scenes where, you know, I've seen some crazy shit. And I can, honestly, I'm really good at compartmentalizing. So going onto a scene like that would be fascinating because I could separate it from the, oh my God, who the fuck did this and how the fuck did they do this? Um, because it's the, okay, well, I'm going to figure out 
I'm going to get these answers for these dead people. Like, like this is nerdy and dorky, but like my whole thing is like, um, my, my, my job is to, um, give answers to the living, but also be a voice for the dead. And in that sort of case, like going into a scene where their hearts are exploded out of their chests, I would very much feel strongly about, okay, we need to be the voice for these people because ain't nobody else going to be their voice. So we got to figure out what the hell happened here. Um, and takes that upon himself and, and becomes their, you know, their champion throughout the stories. He's definitely. Well, yes. And so your avatar in this story. A little bit. I mean, my, my main focus is cause and manner of death. I don't get involved in the criminal investigation, but a lot of our stories that we tell is, are very much what he's trying to figure out what the hell happened. And I kind of, that's sort of like my, uh, uh, kindred in that word regards where it's like I'm I'm on scene trying to figure out what the fuck happened and he is very much trying to figure out what the fuck happened so that's kind of cool I think that'll be my that'll be an interesting thing to lean into on future novels when we get to a scene and you don't know what happens and kind of some of your um I'm actually curious you know, our, our, the next novel full moon starts very early on they're, you know they go to another crime scene and I'm I'm very curious your thoughts on some of these crime scenes and how mm-hmm. not necessarily how realistic they are because that real you know I, I don't want to hear about the characters pooping I don't need realism in my stories but I want it to be interesting um, and I'm very I don't curious. want to hear about people pooping either well, that's what I'm saying I don't need realism I need interesting yeah. you know you watch an, a courtroom drama where it's actually like court it's the worst movie ever you it's know? the most boring thing I want to see Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson chew some scenery for a while you know um, or uh, what's her face in uh... Uh, my cousin Vinny. Exactly. <laughs> That's my favorite court, courtroom scene of all film. It's actually apparently all cinematic pretty, history. Pretty good, isn't it? As far oh, as it's the, fantastic. No, I mean, if, well, Marissa, accuracy-wise, it's apparently actually pretty good. Oh, from what I understand, yeah, no. And Marissa Tomei just delivers it with such a plum. She sort of won an Oscar for that scene. I mean, and she, she, with good fucking reason. Well, I mean, it, they read the wrong name because they were drunk, supposedly. Yeah, who cares? It's a whole to do. Uh, either way, I did like uh, this. This is the last aside on this, I swear. But at the Golden Globes the other night, they actually held up the thing and showed the camera so that nobody fucked it up because they knew they'd all mm-hmm. be drunk by the end. Um, okay, that's the best part about the Golden Globes is just, just watching famous people get drunk, get more and more drunk as the night goes on, as this podcast will tend to do. So, cheers, possibly. Only we're not famous, we're just people, no, they're, they're just like us. Um, us magazine so um, <laughs> yeah we're in a good spot one of the things i love is um you know again kind of going back to this novel as opposed to starting with you know from scratch is you see a lot of the traits in harry a lot of the just kind of the narrative through lines you see all the way back 18 novels ago is really just kind of cool to see and this is my uh second time going through it since battleground the newest novel released um so i'm telling you, I, I listen to this books all the time they're just on in the background on while i go to sleep on while i drive, drive to work um i have like a rotation of like five or six series um i fear new thing but uh <laughs> we'll have to get me reading something new that you've already read but Heck yeah uh, but a lot of the stuff you know beyond you know some of the the, the male gazy stuff which is problematic but it's problematic throughout and it's problematic in an intentional way it for the most well and from a so you know i mean from a from a thematic perspective from film and television um noir has very male gaze 
cringe. So much male gaze cringe. And so it actually applies here in this because the whole concept of the noir, the, you know, the private detective, the, you know, there's so many elements of the noir that fit in. And it's, it is something you see throughout the, the series. Um, it does get, again, he just, he gets more skilled as an author, right? So it, um, but you know, a lot of the lack of confidence in himself, blaming himself when people around him get hurt, um, you mm-hmm. know, kind of, kind of typical thing, you know, again, there, there's still archetypes of the noir, you know, down on his luck, private dick, but, mm-hmm. um, they do a good job. Again, it's a little overdone in this novel and certainly, you know, for the next book or two until he smooths again, he just gets, gets better as an author. Um, but those things are still present even in a much different, you know, it's 10, 15 years later, um, mm-hmm. you know, through in the story where I'm at and you see, you see echoes of these things and certain, you know, in some areas he gets better in some areas he gets worse, you know, but you just see, you're seeing fully formed characters that I don't mean they don't change or develop, but you see a lot of Karen from Battlegrounds in this in this book. You see a lot of Harry from Battlegrounds in this book. You, know, mm-hmm. you, you see these characters, and obviously they change and progress and learn and grow and get older. Um, but it it really shows a level of consistency, and we we talked about it earlier, where just the the there's a plan here, and it really is set up nicely. This is obviously a novel that works on its own. It has to, you know, as the, the introduction yeah. to the character. Um, it does a really good job of that. It, it you know, introduces you to the main players. It, it tells a compelling story. You learn a, t- a ton of world building. Um, but it really does set you up for a lot of the things that are to come. Um, you know, it hints at his past with his mentor and with his first love. And, you know, obviously he and Murphy have, have some past. You know, it, it lays the groundwork for Marcone. Um, you know, just all these things, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, the vampire is, she's in one scene and she steals, the, you know, steals it. Um, so, so really, she impacts the story yeah, for sure. I, I just, I mean, that's one of my favorite chapters of the, you know, the first few novels, just because mm-hmm. it, A, there's cool world building stuff. You learn a lot about it. You know, as a Buffy guy, I love anything with vampires and I love mm-hmm. the new spin, you know, that he puts on it, but um yeah really cool stuff and i'm really excited about it um you know the the flip side is the downside of you know the the section of this podcast we're gonna call yikes which um well okay so before we get to the yikes oh yeah i was thinking about this last night um after having run through this uh he is very much like eddie from this is my frame of reference from who framed roger rabbit oh yeah another another great noir private dick and it's but it's it's a he's got some of that misogynistic but he also is very flawed by and he's very impacted by his past he has the lack of confidence because of his past so that was uh just one of my random based on butcher's age i would guess that probably was a big influence for sure yeah um, and and it because he's he's less Dick Tracy, more Eddie from Roger Rabbit. Yeah, he's. I can't he's, remember Eddie's just, last name, but I can hear Roger Rabbit saying Eddie. Eddie. Uh, he's just not cool, you know, which is an important part of mm-hmm. Dresden. I mean, you know, badass wizard, but like he's just not a cool dude. You know, he mentioned that he's a, he's a he's a, a geek, um, a, a magic nerd. He's the arcane equivalent of a classic computer geek. Yes, yeah. um, which I liked a lot. 
Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so I mean, do you, have, do you have more thoughts on the on that section, um, or do you want to move ahead? Um, in 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 regards to kind of like the the world building story, there there are so many pop culture elements where these they predate it predates actually because I mean it was written in two thousand it was published in two thousand and the the with him and um Karen Murphy you see so many shades of Castle and Beckett and Bones and God damn Angel. it what is Angel. What is Angel? Angel. An angel. Okay, I'm sorry. I don't remember his character's name, but he's Angel. Angel. And, yeah. So, and, you know, and those are the, it's very much that flavor of you've got the non-cop person and the cop person. And, I mean, I don't know. Now it's, it's cliche. It's like, right, it's like that it, is it's the Seinfeld, cliche. the Seinfeld effect, right? Where you watch you watch old episodes of Seinfeld and it's it's so cliched. Mm-hmm. Um, but really... Because everybody's copied it. This is where the cliches came from. Yeah. That's really funny. Because even, okay, because this even predates CSI, because CSI is 2001. Um, So that's, it's a very interesting time period for a story like this to be written. Um, But yeah, that's where my big hits. We we talked, we touched on it a ton in the recaps. I don't want to, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Too much. But the, uh, the idea of the, the, the magic circle theory uh, was really cool and, and unique. You're not like you, you see circles, and you know, obviously, he, he even met references. It, it is uh, rooted in actual, you know, pagan culture mm-hmm. and different. A hundred percent. But it's it's just cool to put it at the forefront. And again, that, that's something he does. That's really cool as we go through. Well, this. and see a lot of different types of lore. Another random Alyssa historical factoid so when i was an undergrad i studied playwriting and i had to write a one-act play and my one-act play was based on witchcraft and i did a shit ton of research in the you know that's actually our our, our next podcast is going to be breaking down Alyssa's one-act play (laughs) oh my god i have to send it to you You i want to read it so bad sorry Um, carry on Oh my gosh. But, uh, so, but I did a lot of research. Our, our, if, page, if, our Patreon leader, readers are a Patreon. There leader, we we'll go. Get a, we'll get a link to that. There we go. Um, but so like I did a ton of research in this special section of the library at UCSB, which if it were Harry Potter, it would be the restricted section because these are all like old ancient books. I was looking at like books on black magic and things like that, oh, that's but so everything, cool. everything was based in circles. Oh, no, no. And I included some of these incantations in my play, but I changed words because I didn't want to be summoning shit on stage. I'm like, you know what? Let's not, let's not test this theory. Oh, that's let's awesome. not test this theory. Uh, but that's the thing. The, the circle, the concept of a circle was so important in all of my, all of the research I did. And if you go back, like culturally, anthropologically, circles are so important. The concept of a circle, the concept of an unending circle. Even if you look at, you know, okay, Beetlejuice, they hold hands in a circle to do the seance. The concept of holding hands in a completed circle for a seance. Like, all of those elements, the circles are so important, and I love that he brings that in, because circles are important in every element, every culture for history. We're going to see circles more throughout this novel and obviously it's you know it's one of the first pieces of magical lore they bring up it's it's mm-hmm. going to be a part of this story names and circles babe names yeah. and circles I, I love that those are the two things they really focus on in this one because yeah. they're both so simple they're both so cl- like er- you you don't have there's no confusion with it you don't need to like you know like you don't really need to handhold us through why they're no. important um and then you know it's just it, it's really cool um 
so yeah so some really good world building certainly some really interesting storylines are set mm-hmm. up here um you know we have a, a vampire who's mad at him we have a former es- former escort who's mad at him um we have a cop who's mad at him um i mean and we uh have the outfit the mob is mad at him so really same, uh, bro same <laughs> yeah, right. you know, just a day in the life of, of our uh you know our bumbling but uh lovable wizard so mm-hmm. um we're definitely set up for some good things to come here later in this novel and moving forward um but um uh, you, you good to move on here i am uh so this is a section that we're going to call the of the podcast called yikes which uh we're going to touch on some of the less effective storytelling elements some of the less um some of the more dated pieces of the the, the writing which um, you know, again, nobody's perfect. We're not sitting here saying, you know, trying to cancel Jim Butcher or anything like that. But no, no, no. Definitely want to shine a light and recognize, you know, it's, I would imagine, again, this is me from coming from a very privileged perspective, but most fantasy is written for me. I'm a cis, white, straight male. I was just going to say, a cisgendered I, white I get, male in the middle class. You know, I mean, they're gonna, I, I drag, everybody loves dragons, but, you know, I get titties, I get dragons, you know. Um, it's very much, most of the storytelling is aimed at someone like me. Um, and so, Unless it's smutty or romance-based, and then it's aimed at people like me. Sure. And, and again, and even that is incredibly sexist. You know, it's just, just trying to find a good mm-hmm. story as a, as a, you know, a woman I, I would imagine is difficult. And so that's one of the important things that we want to shine a light because I know, you know, especially from the subreddit and just even talking with people in real life, um, imagine that, um, it's, <laughs> it, it's hard for some women to get into this story because it really is, it, it's, it's very male gazy. It's, it's, yes. it's not written, you know, it's written by a straight white dude. Um, which is fine because you know that happens a lot. Well, obviously. absolutely. And like but I said, I'm not trying to cancel the, the guy. Go ahead, sorry. But it's the it's the the way in which he writes at the beginning, and by the end of the book, it seems to chill out a little bit. But there are a lot of things where it's just like, bro, bro, my eyes are up here. Yeah, you know, so and like as a, as a woman who I don't even have a rack, but like it's you, my eyes are up here, bro. Like, those are the sorts of things that, like, you kind of experience. And it's sort of like, it took me a minute to get into it. Not going to lie. Not going to lie. The way he, like, like we've discussed, the way, the hardcore descriptions of the women. Like, literally, in my notes, I, I capitalized hardcore description of Murphy for chapter two. Chapter two. <laughs> and she's wearing a pantsuit. But, you know, she might have good legs under that pantsuit. <laughs> I'm sorry, but come the fuck on. This is so dumb, but I don't know why this is just, I'm remembering this right now Uh from, uh, what was the Tim Allen tool time show home improvement? Yeah. There's an episode where he's talking to his wife about how sexy it is to not know. And how like, she talks about getting wearing a dress that covers her from neck to heat to to toes. And he's like, Oh, that's so sexy. Um, which is obviously ridiculous. And that's the joke. Um, but it's just, Harry is just so dumb, um, that he would find, I, I, I guess he's so dumb. He reminds me of Tim Allen. <laughs> but, well, but the other thing that I was thinking about in um, the whole dealing with the feminine in our omniscient narrator, he is over, over, anal- overly analytical about women's appearance. And gets uncomfortable about a pair of underwear. 
which is very oh, one okay he's not a he's not omniscient uh but we but his our our narrator our male narrator mm-hmm. where he is so over descriptive our quote hardcore descriptions of the women but then he gets uncomfortable at a pair of underwear found in the hotel room I mean, that's just, it's very, he's 25, allegedly, but it's very young. It's very immature. It's very much like, you know, schoolboys giggling about panties, which is a hideous yeah. word, by the way. It is important. You, I mean, you mentioned it. He's 25. And, and again, yeah. when I was 25, I was a very dumb person. I like to think I was a little bit more well-adjusted. I also hadn't committed murder. Um, you know, I mean, he, he clearly doesn't have a lot of friends, so he's not well-adjusted. Um, and one other thing that's important, you know, uh, uh, about, again, giving Butcher some credit here, I haven't read his other, uh, Codex Alera, um, but apparently it's like, there's no sexism, no male gaziness. So if, if, if there apparently very much is intentional, like you said, it fits with the noir. Um, and you know, one of the things is it, a book about perfect characters is boring. Right, you don't want perfect characters because then there's no tension. So it's okay to have characters, even heroes, with bad characteristics. Right? I mean that that's an mm-hmm. important part of the flawed, troubled, noir detective. Yes, hundred percent. But bad characteristics need to be punished, and that or balanced. Let's say not necessarily punished. There needs to be balanced. Well, if they're balanced, then and the character doesn't learn, then they're it's still bad. I, I don't punish is probably not the right word. Yeah. What I mean is that there's consequences, right? Okay, and, so. and, and to some extent we do see that with Harry where women are off put by him because he's such a fucking weirdo. Um, he's got the fedora tipping lady. Yeah. But, but it's just not enough. And so I think um, that's the balance that we need to find is you can be a misogynistic prick, but everyone needs to, the, the world needs to recognize you're a misogynistic prick and treat you like that. As opposed yes. to just glossing over it or pretending it's a positive characteristic. Um, so I just looked something about up about narrators, and uh, I couldn't remember the terminology. Mm-hmm. And we have a reliable narrator and a non-reliable narrator. And basically, it feels like at this point, Harry is not omniscient. That's mm-hmm. a, a sorry, I had that wrong. But he is a reliable narrator. He's not lying to us. Yeah, and him, his misogyny is his truth and i want to i want to realistic i want to just clear something up for the audience here is a reliable narrator doesn't mean he's right all the time no it means it, he's, but honest he's, he's, he's yeah. being honest what he's seeing and i feel like we are getting that honesty with which he is with what he is seeing absolutely yeah yeah um just the other thing I want to touch on was just the way he they talk about the love potion. I mentioned it in oh my the gosh, chapter. Yes, I totally have a note about that. <laughs> oh, cool. uh, even where he thinks for one second that he'll use it on on Susan is just so rapey and unnecessary. Well, and again, because what it does is it puts consent into question and the whole concept of, of using tequila because, well, it'll lower her inhibition. But it's... You're lowering her, lowering her inhibitions and then adding money because that's sexy. You're cutting a bitch into fucking you. Like, that's not cool. Like, that's the whole thing where it's very uncomfortable. And that money is sexy. Um, 
which was very eye rolling. Again, I but really, the- I have this problem, and this is this is a uh, this is a character flaw that hopefully will be punished as our you know humble heroes go through this process. Mm-hmm. I. I just love Bob. I think a lot of it is the voice that Marsters gives him. I think mm-hmm. Bob is so funny and he's just, he's just so dumb. Um, and I think again, it's, it depends on, on, you know, the, the, what the perspective of the author is. And it's death of the author. It doesn't matter what the perspective of the author is, but what they're trying, what, what the intention of mm-hmm. the story is there is I really do think that Bob is supposed to be over the top and ridiculous. We're all supposed to think he's ridiculous. We're supposed Bob to is a, is hundreds of years old. Yeah. He also, yeah, that's true. He's coming from a very different perspective. His frame of reference is very different. Um, and the other thing is like the last time Bob got an outing, he went to like a sorority house or something like that. And it's just like, that is so late nineties cliche. Oh wait, this is written in 2000. It's the revenge I mean, of the, revenge of the nerds kind of thing where you're like, oh, it's funny, and then like uh-huh, ten years uh-huh. later, it's like, holy shit, Ooh, that was amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is exactly that. But I, I, again, I do think Bob is is wrong, and I think the the story treats him as wrong, and Harry treats him as wrong. Yes. Um, and when I have, and again, that scene, which is again, this is a ridiculous. This is I, I realize I'm being ridiculous and like kind of towing lines here, but like. Where the scene I feel like goes off the rails is when Harry agrees with Bob, <laughs> you know, about the love potion. Yeah. That's the only time where that's that yeah. that feels kind of gross and rapey. It doesn't I never got that from Bob. I get that it's a comedy and he's clearly saying dumb stuff to be funny and we're we're supposed to realize that we're in we're in on the joke with Bob, right? We realize uh, But it's still uncomfortable. That's fair. I mean, and that's one of the things where it's like, bro, come on. Because the thing is, is that oh, this is going to get into a whole deeper situation. But like, like every woman I know has been in that situation where like a dude's trying to get you drunk to get take advantage of you. And so that's sort of like that's even with it's the comedic interpretation, it's still a little bit uncomfortable. Fair. From a female perspective. And again, and that's what I'm saying. I'm coming at this from such a different perspective where like, yeah, this is and I realize that. And so I'm trying to do my best um with that section um yeah, yeah any other things we want to point out um yeah a little bit of the, the, yeah, the chivalry stuff we discussed repeatedly the you know the over description of the over physical description of the females mm-hmm. um but you know it is what it is um and we'll see if that gets better or worse as the time goes by. Again, this is the first time I've really gone through this very critically. So okay. I'm actually very intrigued to see what, yeah. what I learn about the story and how if if this impacts how I feel about it um, going through this with you. So this is, as much as I am very excited for you to get to read these, I'm very excited to get to read these with you. Um, which is rad. Which should be really fun. Like I said, maybe we'll do this with a different story moving forward. Uh, we got... 18 of these things to get through. Um, mm-hmm. So um, your best character moment or your favorite quote from the first third of the book. Oh my God. My favorite quote is totally that. So I have a problem with creepy dead poisonous things. So sue me. Same bro. Same. Like seriously. And we had talked about this as a sidebar, but mine is basically yeah. the same thing. Um, so clearly yeah. Clearly, you can tell that we have similar tastes, but... Um, well, okay, from, the very first... from, my per- 
Oh, from me- my professional's perspective, too, is like my, I can handle a lot of gross shit, but ants give me the heebie-jeebies, and I get the, I get so much shit for that, and so it's like, okay, me. I don't like things that can crawl all over me and then is secrete acid from their feet. Fuck off. <laughs> that was really my, like, communing with nature with, uh, Dresden in that. So I have a problem with creepy dead poisonous things. Same, bro. Same. Ants are neither creepy dead or no. poisonous but i digress very creepy uh, though no, very my, creepy my, my quote was from chapter one mm-hmm. when the very first you know we're still learning who this guy is and he says paranoid probably but just because you're paranoid doesn't mean there isn't an invisible demon about to eat your face amen which is some of the best advice i've ever had i have oh, that yeah. tattooed on my left arm i don't really <laughs> um but i live my maybe life. you should i should i live my life by that creed um so uh that's that's just about it wrapping up here um one last thing to do is uh you know you you haven't read the novels you don't know what's coming after this um so we're gonna get uh every week we're gonna get Alyssa's crackpot theory of the week so Lissy, what do you got super strong on this okay i there's two elements here um my favorite crackpot theory that i'm going with right now is that johnny marconi is supernatural He's not just some like super like cheese ball like mob boss. I swear to I swear to God, he's got to have some supernatural shit, and not just like even if it's just like he's oh the Walking Dead because he has no soul. But the soul gazing moment, like he could look into Harry's soul. Harry has killed somebody. Harry has all of this. And and for Harry killing someone, his it is much t- more tormented in his soul than having Marconi kill somebody. Oh. So we've got these two levels where this is a tortured wasteland. He is looking into Dresden's eyes and is like, yo, bro, what's up? <laughs> like, that was a huge thing. That was spectacular and amazing, and I love that. He stared into uh, the abyss and said, eh. Exactly. Stare, scared into the, stared into the abyss and kind of shrugged his shoulders. Um, awesome. and my I other thing it. is one of my favorite, uh, it, it's not necessarily a crackpot theory, but it's sort of like a, where are we going with this? Where Harry is on the Chicago PD's, like, I guess, billing statement. He is a line item for a psychic investigator. Like, are you, are we implying that there's more psychic abilities that Harry has? Oh, interesting. I think, I think the non-human, Okay. The supernatural. He might not be. He might be human with supernatural skills. But the Marconi supernatural is way more viable than he's than Harry being actually psychic. But those are my two. Like, mm-hmm, yep, All right. maybe. I love it. Way to get way to get things going. Hey, um, rock and roll. So there you go. Thanks for bearing with us. This was our very first podcast ever. So yikes. we're like, uh, yikes. We're gonna have to have a whole yikes section when somebody a hundred years from now when archaeologists break down the podcast about the podcast. Um, there's going to be a big long yikes section of all our mistakes, but, um, I'm really excited to get through this. Um, we have about two thirds of Stormfront to go. So we're going to go, um, for those following along, I think we decided we were going to go through chapter, what chapter was that? Um, 20, 20. Yeah, next round. Well, yeah. we've gone through. Yeah, next round is going to be chapter twenty, so we can break it up into three parts, three semi-equal parts. Uh, the middle chunk is is pretty hefty, so it kind of gives us that. Yeah, and we'll try uh, to we'll try ability, to be a little bit. So more we're not keeping you around for twelve hours each episode. <laughs> we 
which you know we'll see um Amen. so we'll, we'll kind of see we're gonna feel it out like i said we're still learning we'll see how much of the book what i don't want to do is do like one chapter at a time two chapters at a time i just feel like that'll get so slow um and, and also, you would hate us we, i also won't finish we won't finish this project until you know i'm 78 um that's in like five years lizzie um ouch <laughs> um i love my older sister i'm 26 i'm only 26 um, so we <laughs> Uh, we'll, we'll get through this. Um, like I said, the plan is to go next next week. We're going to mm-hmm. have the second chunk out. Um, going through chapter 20, if you want to read along. And then we will finish up with the last bit of the book and do a breakdown before we get into the next one. And we got a, we got a long road ahead. So get comfortable, sit tight. Uh, we appreciate you. Thanks for listening to The Podcast Was On Fire. And it wasn't my fault. Mm-hmm.